Sam Stern, joined in studio by my colleague Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. Jenny is back from San Francisco very recently. Our customer experience forum out there was last week. And if you're listening to this, not the minute we put it out, that was the week of uh, October 16th, 2017. I don't know how far into the future this will go, Jenny, because we're predicting the future here. So uh, in five years time, people might want to look back on this and say, wow, I can't believe that's what we thought the future of artificial intelligence and technology and all of these things in our lives would be. So tell us, you were at this two-day event that was largely all about this, right? Right? The impact of technology, of virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence on our lives. What are we looking at? Yeah, well, first, I really like the idea that this is a time capsule yes. in our podcast here <laughs> of our predictions of the future so we right. can look back on this. But the forum was actually called Human and Machine. So we were completely looking at the way that technology was going to alter how us humans function in the world around us. And we noticed that we, we emphasized different components of that throughout the forum. So day one was a lot of focus on the machine. Yep. So how is technology changing the way we work, both from optimizing campaigns to also creating VR experiences? Yeah. And then on the second day, we, we flipped the script to focus on the human component. Mm. So first there was how do we humanize these machines? that they act empathetically and engage with people in a more sort of emotive, human-like way. And then there was also how do we think about the human who is a human (laughs) and needs to engage with these machines, which is this completely different type of interaction. Right. Okay. So we want to make our machines Mm -hmm. more Mm human-like. And you gave a presentation that you shared with me and I looked at that talks a lot about this, uh, the machines getting more human, uh, yeah. sometimes in creepy ways, I would say. But then also humans have to adapt to their machines. Is that what yeah. you're saying? So let's start with day one. I mean, what is happening? You know, what are some of the examples or trends that you're seeing and that we saw at the forum of this machines getting even more human-like? Yeah, so there were... A few. One, and we, we sort of grouped this under this concept called the augmented reality. Okay. Not talking about AR, right? The, that we're familiar the with. Augmented right? The reality. augmented reality. Yeah. So the world that we live yeah. in and how we're augmenting it through the use of technology. Yeah. So we talked a lot about artificial intelligence in terms of machine learning and leveraging algorithms as opposed to there are a lot of other kinds as well, like visual recognition that count as AI. Something like this machine learning could be maybe the one a lot of us would be familiar with a Mm -hmm. smart thermostat starts Mm -hmm. to understand when you're home, you know, who's in the house, which rooms are occupied and starts to tune the temperature for the different rooms based on use over time. Is that a good example of machine learning, right? Yeah, that's a great example. We also used an example of how this can be used for designers. There's an example Hmm. where Nutella used one algorithm to create 7 million different designs, right, which is above and beyond the human capacity. And so it can learn over time and you can use these new sensors to feed the algorithm at rapid speed and it can adjust creative and recommendations. So so they're they're creating 7 million designs. Mm -hmm. So what? Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) big deal, big deal algorithm. Yeah. It was funny because that's the example of So early stage AI is being used to mainly detect patterns, Uh right, and provide some early stage recommendations. It's not doing too much thinking of its own or anything too robust. So that was an example of how, yes, you can use this and it can augment cognition or thinking, right, to go above and beyond what the human is capable of by turning that out so quickly. But then there are other examples, for example, Autodesk 
as this idea of generative design, mm-hmm. where they can take the frame of a car, come up with a lot of different designs where the designer has just said, you know, this is the goal that we want to accomplish. Here are some constraints. Give us different designs that are possible. You can also then put sensors on the prototypes of that and see, you know, what is the impact when this car hits at this angle and where do we need to strengthen things versus where can we remove material? And so yeah. that's sort of designing itself in real time. No, that's fascinating. I actually, I mean, I can see the application of that to cars, but cars still, once that design is created, you're trying to have an assembly plant where you're mass producing them. Mm-hmm. The example that I'm thinking of where I could see that applying is in, in houses where um, there's this blog I love called McMansion Hell. And it documents the uh, crimes against humanity that are some of these poorly built, poorly conceived homes. And a lot of what she's calling out on the blog, this is such a random story, but I'm going to continue with it. This is great. A lot of what she's calling out on the blog are these nubs on the roof line where clearly the client had a change, wanted a bigger closet, wanted a taller ceiling. And the only way to do it was to create this thing that outside of the house is so transparent that... That should be a sloped roof line. Instead, there's this weird nub sticking out over here that screws everything up. Whereas if you had that kind of generative software that Autodesk has for designing cars, you could say, okay, in real time, give us you know, a dozen options for adding mm-hmm. height to this closet so we can figure this out and not destroy the look of the home, the sort of symmetry of the roof so that you, you don't have all these little places that could spring leaks, you know, those types of yeah. um, considerations. So I, I could see the value in that. That, ma- that makes sense to me. And you could also, so two things to build on that. So one, we could create the general design and then just 3D print everything and everything would be ready and perfect in a second. Right, right. Um, including the houses. And then also you could have VR right. on that as well. So your general design is using the sensors that are on the person walking through the VR experience yes. and okay. saying, oh, I actually want an extra foot in this closet. Let's in real time right. push that out a foot. Right. So then when you build the house from scratch, you've included all of these different types of inputs. Very cool. Yeah. So building it in 3D sort of in real time like you know eventually it just the machines build the house too and all the jobs go away right this is sort of the, one of the evergreen existential fears related to all technology but in particular i think ai and and sort of this emerging area did that come up at all on day 2 did that come at all up at all on day 1 about you know what jobs are left for humans even as these machines get more human like yeah, so J.P. Gounder presented on that a lot because he talks about automation of the workforce and how many jobs it's going yes. to be taking. And I don't want to misquote any stats, so I will stay away from the specific numbers. But I think somewhere in the near future, you know, we predict that 17% of jobs are going to be lost to automation and that will continue. But this is where we think about the different type of job. So going back to that Autodesk example, the designer is still there. Right? Yes. They're still setting, this is the goal that we have to achieve. These are the constraints we need to work within. You, the algorithm, are giving me all sorts of inputs and designing it in real time much more right. quickly than I ever could. But I'm still there, and I'm still making that end decision. Right. So you become VR, one, one version. VR walkthrough coordinator is a new, yeah, exactly. new job that emerges. Yeah, or right? the algorithm manager, yeah. right? That could yeah. be a job. So yeah. uh, I think we'll look at different types of jobs. I think you're right. I mean, it's same as it ever was, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They always talk about at the turn of the 20th century, something like 65% of people were in this country, in the U.S., were farmers. Yeah. And couldn't have imagined a future where that was not the case. Right. And the future of being was like the, uh, the SEO manager at a company. That was not a job that you would fathom existed. Yeah. So this algorithm manager is very, very feasible. Okay. So we see 
all of these possibilities, uh, you know, and I think to your point, back to the Nutella design that I was sort of poking holes in, at its root, it's showing the raw power of the algorithm, right, if nothing else. And, and, and I think that power is on display in, in that Autodesk example, too, of how much it can do relative to what a human could do, even using a piece of software in the same amount of time. So obviously, we talked about the loss of jobs. Are there other downsides that sort of came up, you know, in terms of the, I don't know, the, the creepiness factor or the lack of loss of meaning because we're sort of just, you know, turning a switch on and off for the algorithm to run in a loss of meaning in, in our value or our work, our purpose? Yeah. So... We looked at the pros and cons, uh, and you mentioned this earlier when we were introducing this topic, which is that the machines are changing, but then there's the human on the other side responding to the machine. Right. And this machine, while we're focused on making it more human-like and more intelligent, the human might just think it's really creepy. Right. So how do we think about the human yeah. interacting with these new types of machines? And that's where a lot of the downfalls begin to happen. So this isn't from a you know, the future of the UX designer per se, such as you know the Nutella example taking the creative job, but it is a new consideration that you have to account for. So when I think about the algorithm, the algorithm could become biased, right. right? Either because the data set that it has is so limited, or there's a bias of the person programming it, how to learn which way makes it weigh in, yeah. even if they don't know it's a bias. Well, this is that that great book. Um, I haven't read it, but Weapons of Math Destruction, right, talks about this a lot. Mm-hmm. The the sort of inherent biases in these big yeah. algorithms that we're not even aware of. Yeah. And some of them aren't done on purpose. So the right, example that right. we, we showed is a really simple one. If you go to Google Translate and you put in, uh, she is a doctor, he is a nurse, you translate it into Turkish, which doesn't assign gender to its pronouns, and you translate it back, um, he is a doctor and she is a nurse. Uh-huh. And yes. so you can begin to see this bias there. But what they did was probably just look at clusters of, of pronouns to job and make the best guess, yeah. which is what the algorithm does. Yeah. But as the person looking at that, you say, okay, but if our customer saw this, they probably think we're biased. Right. Right. And this might not be reflecting our culture and the way that we want our customers to think that we think. So you have to watch what these yeah. algorithms are doing, even if the bias is, you know, is mathematically based. It gets a little complicated. Well, no, and I think that that's a great example of where, you know, the majority of data out there on the web for the algorithm to search on have doctor as he, but, you know, A, that's not accounting for the large minority still, I guess, maybe of doctors that are women or the fact that it's trending in this direction, right? I, I yeah. keep th- feel like I keep seeing stats that more uh, women are going through med school these days anyway. So, you know, this is not only not a representation of the entire truth, it's not a representation of the truth that we're migrating towards, right? It's not reflecting right. the near future reality that yeah. we're going to have. That's and interesting. As an algorithm, it doesn't think like that. Right, right. It's so, it's there's a lot of backward-lookingness yeah. uh, to the data yeah. it can use, Good which point. is interesting. So that's one way that humans adapt or a area where we have to be more sort of attuned to mm-hmm. some of the foibles of a um, an algorithm. And that's a good one. And, I, and it, to me, that's an interesting sort of maybe encouraging sign of there's still work for humans to do as flawed and biased as we all are ourselves. The fact that we have to be the ones to sort of watch out for that in our algorithms is, is maybe something that can make us more conscious of it ourselves to, uh, to get utopian here for a second. Yeah. Um, anything else from day two in terms of what humans need to do to sort of better work with their machines. Yeah, so I'll do one more on algorithms. And then there are a lot of other things too. Uh, Just because we talked about algorithmic bias, which is something to watch. Yes. Um, But there's also the fact that 
uh, the companies now can know so much more about their customers. Right. And we think about this initially as a good thing, right? I am targeting to Michael, right? Not just a part of this segment. So it can allow us to be more personalized in our recommendations and create a stronger connection, a more human-like connection, humanize the customer. But can we go too far? And this is where we have to think about the role of ethics um, and customer privacy increasingly in the role as well. And the example there. Um, is from 2013. So we mm. can only imagine how much smarter algorithms right. are today, where these researchers using just what people liked on Facebook were able to predict with a really high degree of accuracy, really personal information about those people. Oh, wow. And that included religion. It included race. It included sexual orientation. Um, and this is information that maybe you're able to know about your customers. But then the question becomes that this isn't something that they want to tell maybe even their family right. or their friends, yeah. surely not your company. Should you be collecting that? Uh, should you be acting on it if you do? And sort of how does that begin to play out? So you have to think about the ethics going into what you are actually identifying, how far you can go, and then what you can act on. I think that's another interesting sort of concern and role that we'll see and that could easily fall into the customer experience yeah. role because you're thinking of the customer's emotions and privacy. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, you know, yeah, something like gender orientation, sexual orientation, religious affiliation, mm -hmm. that information in the wrong people's hands puts someone's life at risk. And so there's be very good reasons why they wouldn't want it publicly shared. And Facebook has a bias towards everything being publicly shared, right? I mean, that's yeah. their business model. Gosh, that is, that's kind of uh, sobering to think about. Yeah, sure. they even had some too, which were emotional stability. Yeah, right. <laughs> what, what do you do with that piece of information? And are you also using this for hiring decisions? Right. We're seeing some companies beginning to do that. Facial recognition has been shown to also be able to identify some attributes with 80% accuracy of people. Should that be allowed? If I'm a firm trying to be responsible, ethical. I mean, a lot of that information too, I don't want to have that information. I, I would think if I'm a hiring manager, I don't want to know these details about you that I'm not supposed to ask you about it by law. I'm not supposed to know. And I would hate for you to think that the reason we don't hire you when we probably have lots of candidates we're considering is for those reasons. And I don't want that to creep in. I don't want to be doubting myself that that was the reason why I didn't hire you or something like that. You know, it's like, let's just judge you on the merits, not on all these other facts that I can easily glean now that this information is, is so discoverable by our technology. Yeah, it's kind of scary. Yeah, point. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, we were talking before we started recording about how the, the, the best prediction of the future is, is the movie WALL-E, where we're flying around in, in a sort of Walmart or Amazon version of a spaceship being very good consumers and doing nothing else with their lives. Do you have more hope than that, Jenny, for the future? Or, is, or is, do you, are you uh, on board with that, uh, that version of the future as well? Yeah, so I don't know if I do have more hope. This is, okay. this is, so yes, of course I have more hope. Um, but there were some other things too that we might not have the time to get to in this yeah. podcast here that we looked at into the future, which was the concept of VR worlds becoming more real, yeah. the ability to uh, you know, walk through an Ikea kitchen and design it in real time in VR world. We can also imagine in the future you'd be wearing haptic gloves. Right. So you could feel what the counter felt like, feel the wood grain. Also, we had someone 
They're from Soul Machines. Mm-hmm. Show what is this very real like looking avatar that yeah. can actually respond to you and your gestures almost as if a person would. So we began to see this blurring between yeah. <laughs> the digital experience and the real world experience really significantly. Right. So you could imagine a future where I do just sit at my desk and either talk to an avatar, not even a real person, right, or have a real person joining in a VR world. Uh, which is also totally artificial. So the technology is going to enable the future of Wally. But I think that's where we have CX, UX, whoever this person is, thinking about these human considerations to make sure that we use this technology yeah. for good and that it's yeah. only augmenting right. human capability and interactions and experiences as opposed to replacing it. One thing I, I think I, I'd be optimistic about or hopeful about mm-hmm. is the sort of nuanced understanding that I think, to your point, CX and UX practitioners can push their colleagues to better understand, which is we can't feel like we've done our job of satisfying the consumer's goals if we're only satisfying their short-term goals. We can't just say, well, they want sugar, so we're giving them sugar. They want convenience, so we're giving them convenience, without starting to recognize that if too much convenience becomes something that prevents you from doing things for yourself. Too much sugar, of course, is, is you know, turns you into a diabetic or, you know, makes, makes you uh, gain weight. And so even if the consumer, if we ask them every time, do you want this now, would say yes, we need to be a bit responsible about saying, but it's not in their long-term interest. And we need to not just, you know, pat ourselves on the back for solving a short-term goal when in reality, the consumer, if they could get us to sign a commitment contract, would say, don't make that offer to me tomorrow. I think companies will get more nuanced and understanding because they can sort of have that conversation with their customers and say, we're working with you on a long-term relationship, so we want to help you be successful in life over the long term when the technology enables us to all not have to do things for ourselves anymore, frankly. Yeah, right, this focus on efficiency. Yeah. But so then I have a question to pose to you on that. Yeah. So when we think about the future, we talked about this a lot as well, you know, all of our clothes could have sensors inputted into them and yeah. we could have our health monitored constantly and almost manage ourselves, you know, as if we were robots and our doctors know when we need tune-ups. Right. So to this future that you just spoke of, in a way, having all of these sensors on us to make sure that we are exercising enough and that we're still being healthy yeah. and that we're going out in the world sounds like it's a good thing almost, to give that information over to a company to ensure that they are thinking of our long-term interests. Right. But could we also see that as a bad thing? Well, yeah. I mean, and the hacking of that information, right, to use it against people. To your point, a company could think, oh, well, we're we're looking out for your your best interests, but then we're being too overbearing about it. Yeah, I, I worry about this. There's so much power and potential, and, you know, we're not there, right? We haven't evolved, let alone you know, for our modern world as it exists today with, you know, cars and fatty foods everywhere, we haven't evolved, let alone for all these technologies that enable us to have even more information and people to make even more decisions on our behalf. Our brains aren't equipped for that and they won't be. And so it's it's really about managing that so that the human cognitive load is not overwhelmed and isn't exploited. But I, I, I think it can be in both mm-hmm. cases very easily. Ah, well, what a, uh, what an uplifting podcast that has been. Uh, But I think it's interesting because it gives people more to think about and also more opportunity to make sure that they're using technology for good and customer first and improving the interaction and and human uh, long term. So 
yeah. exciting challenge. That's right. And I mean, you know, the Luddites were real people, right? Uh, they were, you know, being put out of business by technology of their age. So uh, it's mm-hmm. always been thus. Uh, you know, I think the uh, the medieval monks worried about the the masses getting access to printed materials when the printing press was invented. And because, you know, it would take it out of the learned people's hands and put it in the masses. And it's like, well, you know, technology marches on. Um, so uh, we have to uh, try and wrangle it into serving our needs rather than, um, you know, us serving its needs. All right. Well, Jenny, thank you for uh, giving us a rundown of the topics and themes and uh, scaremongering at uh, CX (laughs) San Francisco. Just kidding, kind of, about that last one. Uh, Listeners, we'll provide some links to a couple of the related reports. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you all on next week's CX cast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of CXCast. And remember, your customer's perception is your customer experience reality. (laughs) 